0: Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you The Seminarians, a dialogue with students from the Pontifical College Josephinum, produced by AM820 to encourage and inspire vocations to the religious life. And now, The Seminarians.
1: Welcome back to The Seminarian Show. My name is Jacob Stanett. I'm a seminarian for the Diocese of Columbus. And joining me in the studio today is Mr. Brian Smith, a seminarian for the Diocese of Youngstown, Ohio. So let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord God, we thank you for the many different vocations that you give to your church, vocations of marriage, to priesthood, to consecrated life. Through all of them, you enrich the world, you enrich the church with a beautiful garden of graces. Help us to open our hearts and our minds to receive your Holy Spirit and to act with your will. So we pray, our Father, who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy 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 kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass trespass against against us and lead lead us us not not into temptation, but deliver us from from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Brian, today we're going to take a look at some of those questions that seminarians get sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, they might sound a little peculiar to us, but I think there's a reason why they're being asked, um, just based on the general Catholic's conception of mm-hmm, the, the perception church. perception that we give. Yeah, um, and one of those is just sort of driving past the big edifice of the Josephinum uh, Mm -hmm. as you go up to 23, it it doesn't really remind you of all the other buildings around there. It's very distinctive. And um, it kind of almost has a monastic look to it. And there's parts of the life that are kind of monastic. So oftentimes people say, well, how's life at the monastery going? Mm -hmm. Or don't you guys live at a monastery up there? A bunch of monks or something? Well, we're not monks or seminarians, but um, so kind of diving into what is a monastery um, and what... Sort of things that uh, are unique that spring from monastic life, the monastic t- tradition, mm-hmm. that are useful for the church at large. Yeah. For what, everyone.
0: Re- what reasons might people think that seminarians live in monastery? Mm-hmm. That's good to think about. And then, like, you know, there's something that we can find in each of the vocations that enriches the other ones.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some things um, about seminary life um, that kind of follow the monastic model. We live in community yeah um we're not all in our own separate rectories doing formation we're there together next to each other um you know thankfully we have our own rooms for the end Mm -hmm. of the day but um we live together we eat meals together um but there are other times that parts of our life don't look monastic at all Um, we're not bound to the seminary all the time there are free times where we can go out and you know to the movies or Mm -hmm. or have fun somewhere not you can't have fun at the seminary but uh you know uh, we also have all the sort of technologies that are in the world um whether or not the wi-fi works um, is another question (laughs) but we won't go there um and also the um the vows that monks make we don't take Mm -hmm. either right? right even as priests they aren't
0: yeah even once we are ordained we're not planning to make those vows Right. To the extent that monks and nuns do.
1: Right. They're oriented to a different end, um, Mm -hmm. as we could say.
0: Yeah. So... So, I thought maybe today we could consider a little bit about how monasticism began in the church. Sure. Um, The history actually has some pretty engaging stories, one or two of which, you know, I'd like to share today. Um, And it's something that doesn't begin right away mm-hmm. as a a really established tradition in the church we don't have monastic communities really starting until the 4th century
1: what was one of the reasons for this sort of delay in the rise of monasticism in the church
0: the way i've heard it explained the one of the main reasons was that you know in the 4th century with the emperor constantine the Church um, passes from one important period to a new one, and mm-hmm. that first period is when the Church was either kind of a, a fringe religion or definitely not the main religion of the empire, right. and sometimes even persecuted mm-hmm. and Then in the year around three thirty, with the legalization of Christianity, it becomes the religion, the official religion of the Roman Empire, not only permitted but you know promoted throughout the empire. Mm-hmm. So, in those first 300 years or so, to live a Christian life necessarily involved a big
1: commitment. Right. It was already a radical step.
0: Those who were being faithful Christians knew there were consequences for that. And like I said, depending on the place, depending on the time, those were more severe. Mm-hmm. But um, it never was far from anyone's imagination or you know, their knowledge of history that, being a Christian could involve these these trials, these difficulties mm-hmm. then, with the legalization of Christianity it that lifestyle starts to become a lot easier mm-hmm. and we see some problems start creeping into the practice of the Christian faith, like complacency um, or you know making excuses for you know m- calling oneself a Christian but not really living out all of what that meant mm-hmm. so some people see that complacency and they want to remove themselves from the situation where, you know, they see a watered-down church Mm -hmm. and live, in their eyes, a purer form of Christianity. And that often meant getting away from the city, going out into an isolated area, and living um, what we would call a monastic life now. But it had a few forms there in the early times.
1: Sure. So where in the Roman Empire, after the Christian religion was legalized and then established where did the first sort of monastic communities grow was it throughout the whole empire like a sort of universal phenomenon or or maybe a localized sort of particular thing that within later
0: a, within 100 to 200 years it does spread throughout you know most of the, the roman empire mm-hmm. but the place where it's known especially for beginning is egypt and there's a few things that it's helpful to know about just what egypt was like um as far as the geography and the weather and the settlement of Egypt. Sure. What are some of those things? um, We all know that Egypt has a big river that runs through it. Yes, the Nile. mm -hmm, That's basically where people live, because outside of the Nile, you get to desert. Uh So, the population centers are all along the river there. And the Nile runs from the south north to the Mediterranean Sea. Mm -hmm. So... Um, The biggest city in Egypt at the time was right there on the Mediterranean Sea, Alexandria. There were other cities along the Nile going south, you know, gradually smaller cities. So these early monks and nuns, or many of them we even call hermits because Mm -hmm. they lived a very isolated lifestyle. They're moving away from the cities. So that means moving away from the river out into the desert and into the, there's not huge mountains there, but, you know, small mountains, caves and hills and things like that. So they're going to live in these areas, away from the populations, and um, you know the desert becomes then kind of a theme for the monastic lifestyle. Yeah. Those, even those who nowadays live in a monastery in the middle of the forest into other parts of the world, often will talk about their monastery as the desert that they live in, mm-hmm. as part of the spirituality of a monk or a nun.
1: Yeah, and we see that also in the scriptures, kind of mm. the, the use of desert as an image for. Uh, Christ goes out to the desert to be tempted, um, to endure his temptations by the devil. Um, that sort of withdrawing from the community mm-hmm. to focus on one's own spiritual spirituality, spiritual battles, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. So these early Christians, well. I suppose 4th century Christians (laughs) still early compared to us yeah the
0: early monastics (laughs) yes
1: Um, so they they went out into the Egyptian desert Um, what did they do out there
0: well there's three main types of early monastics that we can identify the first one I already mentioned were hermits Mm -hmm. and these were people who went out mostly by themselves sometimes they would live near one another and see one another but they were living an isolated life and they would dedicate themselves to prayer and fasting and mortification, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, the reading of scripture, perhaps. But usually, these hermits weren't necessarily scholars. You know, people who were possessing a lot of books, and I mean, that was part of it. They weren't possessing really much of anything. Right. They often depended upon the charity of people around who knew they lived there and would bring them what they needed to eat, mm-hmm. um, and would only occasionally, you know, come in. To a more public place to have access to the sacraments to worship with the greater Christian community so an example of an early hermit and someone who's considered the founder of monasticism is Saint Anthony the Great mm-hmm. um, and his his life was recorded by Saint Athanasius not long after he died and there's some um very edifying you know stories of how he came to be this early hermit. And,
1: um, yeah, if I remember right, he has a very interesting vocation story, one that, um, certainly has made the books for, you know, these, these past 1700 years or whatever it's been. Yeah.
0: Part of it is that he just responds so suddenly to mm-hmm. these moments when he hears the call. And that usually happens by him walking into a church, hearing some passage of scripture being read, and then immediately walking out to put it into practice. Yeah. So there's two or three examples. Um, he, His parents died when he was younger, and he had a, a sister that he was helping to raise who was younger than him, mm-hmm. so he was caring for her. And at this time, he walks into the church and hears a reading from the Gospel of Matthew about how the apostles left everything they owned and followed the Savior. So what he does at that point is he goes and gives away the property that his parents had given him and his sister and all of the extra possessions that he and his sister didn't need to survive. So he already um, kind of downsizes to a great degree and does some of the things we associate with being a hermit or a monk or a nun, you know, Mm -hmm. embracing poverty, basically.
1: A very simple life.
0: Mm -hmm. And then later he hears another reading from the Gospel of Matthew If you would be perfect, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. So, at this point, Mm. he's responsible enough to realize that he can't just abandon his sister, which is a good thing. I mean, I guess there's a few reasons why he's a saint, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) So, So what does he do? He finds a community of women who he can leave his sister to, (laughs) Uh (laughs) to care for her. And then he effectively gives away the rest of his worldly possessions and then goes out to the desert. And lives there for the rest of his life. And he's famous for the different spiritual battles with temptation uh, and, you know, the spiritual advice he would give to people who had come to see him through the rest of his life. And he lives to be 105 years old. Yeah, that's amazing. Our tradition tells us.
1: You're listening to The Seminarian Show. My name is Jacob Stanett, a seminarian for the Diocese of Columbus. Joining me in the studio is Brian Smith a seminarian for the Diocese of Youngstown. And today we're talking about uh, monasticism, uh, its history, Mm -hmm. and um, the many gifts that it gives the church and gives um, to every Christian life insofar as different aspects that can be modeled uh, from it. So we've been talking about uh, the beginnings of monasticism, uh, which Brian has been telling us began uh, in the 4th century, 4th Christian century, Uh, in the Egyptian deserts. So we'll return to the Egyptian deserts Mm -hmm. and learn more. So we we talked a little bit about hermits Mm -hmm.
0: with St. Anthony as an example. Um, There's two other main forms of monasticism that we saw in Egypt during that period. Um, One was called the Cenobia, or Cenobitic um, monasticism. So Cenobia was a community of monks, living together and it's more than just these communities of hermits that i mentioned earlier where they'd be near each other and they'd occasionally go see see each other Mm -hmm. but in the cenobia, those who are in the community are praying together every day probably they're working together and here we see a monastery more like in a modern sense where they're maybe growing a garden Mm -hmm. and sustaining themselves in some way whereas a hermit would typically just depend on the charity of whoever might come visit them or whoever's around them. And similar to hermits, though, these Cenobia would just focus on the life of prayer, fasting, penance, um, and they didn't have um, much else to their monastic life besides removing themselves, living in the desert, and just having a very radical example of the Christian life. Mm -hmm. And then one last example that we have from Egypt at this time are groups of ascetics who are living closer to some of the big cities. Ah, okay. So basically the main distinction here is that many of these groups had scholars in them. So they t- they might have, um, because of their connection to the city, you know, greater knowledge of languages, mm-hmm. study in scripture. Um, and it was a lot easier for anybody to go visit these communities. Sure. The hermits and the Cenobia, just locals, would be able to go visit them because they're usually very isolated But these groups of ascetics near Alexandria, for example, um, would be more accessible to the average person. So um, those are the three main examples that we see in Egypt at the time. And there's a few other examples we can give from the early years around that same part of the world.
1: Mm -hmm. Very good. So um, from Egypt, then, this sort of style of life spread throughout the rest of the empire Mm -hmm. in both the East and... And the West, Mm -hmm. um, we think of, when we think of monasticism, often we think of the father of Western monasticism, right, uh, right? St. Benedict, um, with his his Benedictine order that is still in existence and thriving today. Um, There are various communities throughout the United States and and worldwide. Um, But there are other types of asceticism, uh, that sort of monastic life that... We don't really find too much anymore. Uh, They're kind of a particular phenomenon of history. uh, Very interesting. Um, One of these uh, is called called being a stylite, Mm -hmm. uh, right? Which is uh, maybe the the pole people or the pillar people. Yeah,
0: it's a really peculiar image. Um, If you look up some of the icons of these stylites, St. Simeon is a famous one. Mm -hmm. They would live for a long period of time on top of a pole, basically. Right. Um, And just to share one very short section from a book of the sayings of the Desert Fathers. Um, It's an early collection of spiritual advice and just stories about early um, monastic communities from the 4th, 5th centuries, basically. Um, Saint Simeon the Stylite, it tells us this. It says, From the top of his column, he saw a man as soon as he entered the monastery and asked him, where do you come from and where are you going so it's just uh, we have these humorous images of these men they're living near a monastery so they have some connection to other people to get yeah. their food and their needs yeah but they're on top of a
1: pole <laughs> and how long would they live was i don't was know i've seen, never seen him on top of his pole for i've never found exact years, documentation
0: or? of how long they would stay up there i have my doubts because it just seems like it would get a little bit messy <laughs> yeah
1: yeah for sure <laughs>
0: Um, Maybe they'd pass buckets up and down or something like that. Could be. I don't know.
1: So I suppose if anyone ever is feeling the call to sit on top of a pole, it is within the Christian tradition. Yeah, uh, as a form <laughs> of of monastic and penitential living. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also another form called dendrites. Yeah, which are similar to stylates. Yeah, if right? you know your
0: root, your word origins, like a rhododendron, it's a type of bush or a tree. Uh-huh. Same thing as a stylite, but they would live on top of a tree oh. instead of living that on sounds top like of It sounds like it might be
1: at least a little more comfortable than a pole. Early tree huggers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just hope it wasn't a cactus or something like that. Yeah, no
0: kidding. So. That'd be very penitential, though.
1: Extremely. <laughs> Extremely. Well, we have all these different forms of monasticism. Um, we don't really um, see as much some of these more extreme ones nowadays but mm-hmm. um hermits still uh exist in the church we don't hear about them very often but right. i think that's kind of intentional that's part of the, the whole uh, deal of being a hermit yeah yeah no one really knows you're there mm-hmm. um and but these uh cenoba, cenobia, mm-hmm. uh, which now we just call monasteries or, or abbeys Yeah, the,
0: the, the second two forms i mentioned are basically forms of modern monasteries mm-hmm. some that are more dedicated to just the life of prayer and their own self um you know, sustaining themselves mm-hmm. and then others which are focused on some sort of study or work out in the community but still very much based in their life together right as a monastery
1: right so you talked one of the things um that's unique about monastic life is this um living this life for one's own um sake well for the sake of god but for one's own holiness I right. should say right because that's how they're going to gain graces. And one of the things that they take as part of their monastic life are the evangelical counsels the three vows right. that they take, um, poverty, uh, chastity and obedience, which mm-hmm. I think uh, most of us are familiar with hearing those three together. Uh, simplicity of life, purity of life, and then the sort of humility or resignation of our own will mm-hmm. to, to the superior. Um,
0: Right, if we look in, the cha- in chapter 19 of Matthew, there's two stories there at the beginning of chapter 19 where we take these evangelical counsels, especially from. And they're called counsels for a reason, because our Lord is the one that gives them. Mm-hmm. Je- Jesus is the one who mentions them, but he recommends them to some people. He doesn't say everyone needs to do these things right, they're not to an commandments. extreme. They're not commandments, that's right. Mm-hmm. So, um, the first story is when he's just talking to his disciples about marriage and they're asking him about divorce. And, you know, he says that, you know, marriage is meant to last for a lifetime, basically. Mm -hmm. And his disciples respond by saying, but this is very hard. (laughs) And our Lord says to that, he says, well, basically you're right. And some people are called to not marry, Mm -hmm. but most people are. Um, And he says, though, where is it saying? Because his disciples basically say, maybe it's better not to get married. He says, okay, right. Some people are called not to be married, but only those to whom it is given. Mm -hmm. So it's a gift to embrace that vow of celibate chastity. And then later in that same chapter, we have the story of the rich young man who asks our Lord, you know, what do I need to do to get into heaven? Mm -hmm. And our Lord says, what you need to do to get into heaven, need to do is follow the commandments. Mm -hmm. And then the young man says, well, I do that. So what else do I? What else should I do? And then he says, um, "If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, have treasure in heaven, and come follow me." So in the in that list there, we see the other two vows: mm-hmm. going and selling what you have yeah. and giving to the poor. That's poverty, poverty. Mm-hmm. and then coming to follow me, you know, leaving everything and giving your entire life's decisions over to the Lord is obedience, right? And right. these are things he recommends for perfection, mm-hmm. but not as requirements for you sure. know, entering heaven.
1: And they're gifts given, so exactly. they're not, not everyone is called to them. Right. Only certain people are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, since these are counsels, not commandments, um, what sort of things do they offer to the church, you know, at large? How does, this, how does this help everyone in the church?
0: Well, when we see monks and nuns living out these vows... We still see examples of virtue for things all Christians are called to do. Mm-hmm. So, in living poverty, for example, not all Christians are called to sell everything they own, especially those who are married and are raising a family. Right. They that have would be highly irresponsible. Yeah, highly irresponsible. Um, you have to provide for one another and for your children. But there is an example that these monks and nuns give for a simple life. So, how can we? meet you know what is required of us but not do so extravagantly not wastefully Mm -hmm. not indulgently so that's that's one example with in the case of celibate chastity not everyone is given the gift of being called to a life you know of not entering into marriage Mm -hmm. those who enter into marriage though benefit from the example of seeing the life of monks and nuns who are given over to prayer and fasting and you know for their own holiness and for the holiness of the church. And it's an example of purity for those who have vowed their lives to one another mm-hmm. as husband and wife and the commitment that that entails.
1: Right. And it also, you know, we say that that um, celibacy is, is a sign, an eschatological sign, right. meaning it's a sign of the coming kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. It looks forward to that time when um, men and women will no longer each other in marriage, but will be, I think it says in the Gospels, will be like angels. Mm-hmm. Um, so the best way I've ever heard that described was um, during one of our Days of Recollection, Father Paul Scalia came mm. uh, to the Josephinum, and he was talking about um, celibacy, and he, he said it's an eschatological sign because in heaven, earthly marriage yields to the supreme marriage of Christ and the Church. So this, this celibate chastity of... Men and women, religious. Sometimes we even refer to it as their marriage to mm-hmm. Christ. Right. Um, it looks forward to that final consummation of all things um, when we will, when God will be all in all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, a beautiful witness that um, that we have and, that vow.
0: And then, lastly, in the third vow of obedience, um, not all people are called to give up their entire life's decision over to another, mm-hmm. like a monk or a nun does to a superior. But we are called to live a life of service for other people, especially for those closest to us, Mm -hmm. Um, not just seeking to make the other people around us do what we want, but seeking to find out, you know, how is it that we're called to live together, especially as a family? What is it I'm called to contribute? And what is it that I'm called to like draw out of others too? you know, what are their talents that I'm supposed to recognize and, you know, seek that they contribute those same things? Yeah. And we're supposed to cultivate humility as well, which mm-hmm. is a part of obedience.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Humility is what makes family living bearable, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> After a while. Um, well, Brian, thank you so much for um, giving us more knowledge, more things to reflect on. With My the vocation to monastic life. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly there are things that seminarians can reflect on, especially in our own growth of simplicity of life um, and celibacy and the promise of obedience that all uh, clergy make to their bishop. So let's uh, conclude here in prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the monastic vocation of men and women religious who are signs of the coming kingdom of God, that final consummation in love of all creation. We ask you to lead us um, in whatever state we find ourselves to growth in simplicity, in purity, and in humility. We ask the intercession of Our Lady, the model of humility, simplicity, and purity, as we pray, Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
0: The Seminarians is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of The Seminarians and all of our locally produced programs are available at stgabrielradio.com.